Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jing Yi Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Constantine Vaporis with us to talk about his new book, Voices of Early Modern Japan, Contemporary Accounts of Daily Life During the Age of the Shoguns published by Routledge last year. Uh, This one is actually a second edition. The first one was published in 2012. Dr. Vaporis is currently at the University of Maryland, teaching and researching about Japan and East Asian history. In this book, um, Constantine surveys a wide range of topics on everyday life of early modern Japan, covering from marriage life, material life, to foreign relations, social and economic life. The most amazing part of this book is its use of numerous primary documents translated and explained, as well as questions and discussions designed for the purpose of class assignment. This There is also a very detailed and categorized bibliography at the end of this book. So welcome, Constantine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to have a chance to talk about this this book, which is now in its th- third iteration from the first time it was published in hardcover with ABC Clio. Thank you. That's great. Before reading this book, I have actually read your other books on early modern Japan, and they cover topics such as travel, samurai duty, and of course, the first edition of this one, Daily Life. Um, your research journey seems quite colorful. So how did it all begin? Colorful, you say, huh? Um, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, it, in a way, it all, all began uh, in my first year of grad school in my very first seminar under Marius Jansen, one of the luminaries in the field. And uh, I had the occasion then to read uh, Engelbert Kempfer's History of Japan. And, and that literally changed my life. Uh, in particular, the passage where he talked about, um, he says something like, uh, it's scarce credible, but large numbers daily travel on the roads. Uh, and that, that just got my attention, picked my curiosity. And uh, so I, I uh, initially was interested to write about Sankin Kotai, alternate attendance, but got sidetracked somehow and uh, ended up writing about the commoner side of movement on the roads and uh, then came back to alternate uh, attendance, um, the subject, main subject of which was the samurai. And, and so that led to an opportunity to uh, write an encyclopedia of the samurai. And uh, having finished that then, and, and I, I write about a number, of, a number of biographies in there, um, but rather short ones of individuals that, that got me interested in delving more deeply into the lives of samurai. So now I'm writing a collection of uh, biographies of of about 14 individuals um, spanning the entire uh, time period. So that's been the 
circuitous route by which I've gotten to the present day. Interesting how you you keep uh, uh, going back and forth in between samurai and commoners. It's true. I I thought I would get back to commoners um, sooner. <laughs> Hopefully, I will. Um, so, comparing to your other books, this one has a very clear purpose to serve the classroom. Can you talk about why you decided to make this book into a textbook? Right. Well, um, I think uh, you know necessity is the mother of invention, and and so like many professors, um, after a number of years of teaching, I became frustrated with having to create a course packet. And you know, updated every year, and unhappy with seeing you know students having to use copies, and also I was frustrated by the kind of source books that existed. Um, not to be crit- critical of them, but their focus was more you know like the Columbia series of sources of Japanese tradition. More intellectual history. I, you know, being a social historian, I was more interested in the experience of a broader swath of people, and so I started to think about uh, putting together a, a source book. But I didn't want to just do a source book. I'd had, you know, several invitations to to put one together. Um, when this opportunity came from ABC Clio to contribute to their series, Voices of um, blank dot 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 uh, series that they have covering all periods of history, and it was the the format of that series that um, attracted me, and and so if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have taken on the project because having having used source books before, it's always been frustrating because most of them don't contextualize the documents. You get you know a few lines, um, maybe a paragraph at most that give you some context for that document. And, and typically that isn't enough, particularly if you're moving, if you're outside your field, your immediate field. And, and also those source books don't tell you, you know, what happens afterwards, the so what? Okay, so, so you have this document and you can understand it, perhaps most of, most of it, but then what do you do with that knowledge? How do you connect it to the larger picture? So the chance, you know, in this format to be able to come back and to have a introduction where you briefly describe the document and an after an afterward, um, which in, allows you to talk about what, what happens or and, and in all cases, not in all cases, we can figure out, you know, what happened. And that's part of history, too. Sometimes we reach roadblocks. And so I think it's very instructive for students to, to see that. Sometimes we can figure things out. Sometimes we're left with these interesting puzzles. But, um, this is what we're left with to try and create a narrative history. And so that that's what I think um, attracted me uh, to this, to have all these documents in a single volume, uh, I think was a big, big convenience um, in my own teaching. And, and so, um, the second edition, I don't know if you noticed, I dedicated it to my students because without them, I, I you know, without the frustration of needing, of, of not having what I wanted to teach, so I couldn't teach the course in the way I wanted to, uh, I, I wouldn't have created the textbook. And then having used it for a number of years and asking my colleagues as well for their input on 
you know, what they liked about the first edition, what they didn't. I was able to um, improve this, hopefully improve uh, the second edition and uh, make it even more useful. That is so true. I mean, studying early modern Japanese history myself, I have rarely seen any textbooks or, or any book even that includes so many primary sources, but more importantly, carefully explaining and contextualizing um, all the keywords in them, the, the, the backgrounds of them. So yeah, this one's, I think this one's the first I've ever seen that does this. For Japan, maybe. I, I hope it won't be the last because I would love to have a similar kind of textbook for other periods in which my, you know, that are not my specialty, in which I really need that kind of guidance. And so I, I think it's also important in, you know, kind of a missionary way of, of trying to uh, have more teachers in high school as well as in community colleges and four-year institutions uh, not be afraid to cover Japan in, in, a, in a more detailed manner. Um, now with this, they have, at least for the early modern period, some some guidance um, and suggestions for furthering their own knowledge as well. That's a very good point. Um, apart from the main contents in which you introduce the history of early modern Japan, there are also other parts for the reader. Can you talk about what components are there in each chapter? In each chapter, sure. Um well, um, this, as I said, uh, wasn't my brainchild, but it was a format that, that, uh, of this series. So basically, there are, I think, about seven different parts, a, a brief introduction. Um, and, and this was one of the challenges of writing uh, the, the, the textbook was that I had essentially uh, word limits for, for, for um, each section. So it required a certain amount of... Uh, of uh, di- discipline to stay within word limits, and so I, uh, in- an introduction of one to one hundred to two hundred words. Um, then a uh, keep in mind as you read section, which kind of steers the reader um, as to what to look out for in the document, kind of key words, key themes, um, so that uh, the reader doesn't just read. Doesn't, doesn't just approach the document cold, so, so to speak. And then the document itself, which, which is uh, offered typically in, in, in uh, uh, an excerpted form, typically under 1,200 words, so as not to overwhelm the, the, the reader. After that, there's a section of uh, uh, aftermath, which I, I mentioned earlier. You know what what happened after the document was issued. What consequences were there? What effects did it have? Um, how does it relate to other uh, documents, perhaps that are are in in the textbook itself? Uh, then there are a series of questions, the ask yourself uh, section, uh, questions to ask about uh, the document, and and these hopefully expand the um, way in which the reader is thinking about the document. And then a topics and activities to consider uh, section, which has uh, suggestions for research, further research, and uh, in some cases, comparative topics. So doing that, I, I really wanted to help to draw in teachers of world history and global history and high school teachers as well um, with, with that section. And then there's a 
a brief section of websites and films uh, as they uh, ex- exist in, in relation to that particular topic. And then uh, they're, they're in, in about half the cases, uh, there are about 25 sidebars. So just uh, sh- short essays on topics of interest like Japanese paper, um, the, the uh, error, error names, how, how those function, and things, things like that. So that's a basic format for each document, and that's consistent uh, throughout the book and, and even in the um, new section of the book, the p- part eight, which is visual documents, part that I was really excited to be able to add uh, to this current uh, edition. When I was reading the book, I thought it was really nice to have all these uh, little points of knowledge that would otherwise be difficult to fit into any any narrative of a research book. So I really liked those little uh, components, actually. Thank you. Um, so my favorite part about this book is, of course, the extensive use of primary sources. I'm all about primary sources. Um, you wrote in the book, too, about the importance of utilizing original documents in learning about history. To give our listeners a taste of your book, can you tell us what um, what kinds of documents do you use in the book and why are they so important? Right. Well, there's a, a range of documents. There, there's actually 66 of them in, in, in the book. So there's a little bit of, hopefully, of everything uh, from, you know, kind of top-down sorts of documents issued by government at the various levels, whether it be the shogunate, the domains, the village level. Uh, there are examples of, from popular uh, literature, from novels of the time. Uh, there are how-to how manuals, uh, how, how to travel, um, for, for example. There's um, uh, a, relig- a variety of different kinds of uh, documents related to uh, religion, from anti-Christian diatribes to uh, uh, public lectures that were given by traveling moralists like uh, Hosoi Heishu, uh, there's a few religious texts. There's an excerpt of uh, a uh, textbook for samurai from Aizu Domain. That's one of the uh, new additions to the uh, second edition. There, uh, the, the new section of, on visual documents has an uh, early example of, of a, um, a kawara mono, kind of new, new sheet. It has a map of uh, Edo. It has a painting and it has a woodblock print, and then it has a, um, a, a, a map of Japan that was created based on primary sources. So it's kind of in, in between a primary document and a secondary. So I, I put that in there. I thought it was important to kind of g- give students idea of, of what they might do with primary um, information to create a new kind of source by creating this kind of map. So that that's uh, there's there's uh, excerpts from diaries and then there's example of material culture which um, I have a special affection for and I always begin the first day of my class te- teaching early modern Japan handing out um, in the classroom a series of different examples of Edo period material culture some coins a woodblock print 
um, a map of Edo, a variety of things like that. And, and I place them around the room and I tell students, I don't say anything about them. And I tell students to go around the room and look at each of them and to, to touch them. And then um, we come back and I ask them, so what do you think we can say about the society that created these objects? And so on day one, they begin to start thinking about the connections between the material culture and the larger history of the period. Um, That's a really great idea. I hope you don't mind that I steal it for my class. Not at all. That's <laughs> not an, an original idea. And, and teaching is about sharing ideas. Uh, so please do. So this good variety of documents, how did you collect them? Uh, how did I collect them? Um, well, some of them are well known. Um, that you know, Examples that you would expect to find in a document source book on the period, the laws for the military houses, for example, the um, so-called Sakoku or closed country edicts. So to begin with, there were those kinds of things that you know you would expect to find in the volume. And so I kind of began began with those. And then 66 sounds like a lot of documents, but it, it really isn't when you start to divide them into different categories and, and you want to be representative. You don't want to slight intellectual history or religious history. Um, so it became, you know, it, I had to select very um, ju ju judiciously, if you will. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry, what was the, the question now you were asking me? How did you collect all these documents? Right. Um, so a number of them, uh, of course, as I said, uh, the genesis for the textbook was uh, out of necessity, the kinds of things that I would bring to the classroom. So as I said, talking about bringing maps of Edo to the class and, and uh, woodblock prints, so that those would naturally uh, be included. And it just became a matter of finding representative examples or examples that would allow me to talk about um, multiple issues, like the painting of the Korean uh, uh, delegation or mission from uh, uh, Choson and allows you to, to talk about foreign relations, the question of whether Japan was closed or not, but it also, because it's an interesting, it's a painting, not a print, but it later became a print. You can talk about the relationship between those genres and art and, and what it actually represents. There's art historians of debated whether it's an actual procession or not, or whether it actually represents a popular festival in which the foreigners uh, are depicted marching through the streets of Edo, the, the uh, Sanyo festival. So that, that's how I kind of uh, approached it. And then I brought in things from my own personal research, um, documents that were related to travel or to alternate attendance. Um, those, uh, I also included. And among all these documents, do you have, uh, were there any that specifically stood out to you? Any favorite ones? Well, um, not particular document, but I, I think the, uh, the first part and the last part, the first part on um, the domestic sphere and the last part on visual documents, I think are kind of nice bookends to the book um, in that 
for example, the domestic sphere in, in pairing different kinds of documents tries to get students to think about, you know, the, the ideal vision of society versus the, the reality and to kind of uh, to learn to read documents against each other, which I think is a really critical uh, skill that applies to, to every discipline. So, uh, and, and, and I kind of do that in multiple sections of the book. But the, the first one, the domestic sphere, I think was really important. And, and uh, a number of historians have, have told me how much they uh, think that it, well, in it, that, that they're glad that it's in the book because it, it allows them to talk about uh, women and, and gender in, in, a, in a different different way. Um, and then the last section to bring visual documents into the discussion, I think is uh, really critical. And the first edition I wasn't, I had a, the publisher uh, limited how many images I could have in the book. So I, I couldn't have a section like that, um, which really distressed me. And one of the reviewers of the book suggested <laughs> in her very kind review, that if there was a second edition, I should really think about it. <laughs> and of course I did. And, and it was something I wanted to do at the first edition, but, but couldn't. So this idea of visual literacy is uh, terribly uh, important. And as I said, in, there are five documents in, in that section, and each one is a different kind of visual document. So that helps also to underscore the, the richness of the visual culture of the, the Edo period. So those are the two I think I, I um, like to highlight the most. That's wonderful. I'm sure the students will like um, the, the those two parts, specific, especially too, because they're not very, uh, they're not discussed quite often in um, any of the the history books that we read. Um, right. Now, as we talked about earlier, in each chapter of the book, you listed questions and discussions for the reader, as well as external readings to refer to or important concepts to think about. While it might be a bit difficult to summarize, can you talk about your criteria for these discussion topics? Right, that's a that's an excellent question. It is also a difficult one, as you uh, suggest. Um, it's been a number of years since I wrote the book, and I'm trying to think back how I first approached it. But in, in looking over the textbook again last night, um, I I. I think I understand my log initial logic, and <laughs> that was to gear the questions so that students would think about change over time, um, and also to think comparatively. And but to ask questions also where that would be possible to research, principally online if possible, or not to be topics that were so obscure that you know they couldn't find something written about the topic in English. So that helped kind of steer the kinds of questions I, I would ask. But the change over time is really uh, important, particularly because, again, this was um, pointed out by a, a reviewer, that the in each section of the book, you, there can be documents from the 17th century and from the 18th century or the mid-18th, or even the early 19th century. And so if you put those together in one section, there might be the danger, you know, if students don't pay attention to the dates associated with those particular documents to think of the Edo period as kind of, you know, as the stereotypical image of it fro frozen in time. 
that there was no change over time. So it's really important to consider, you know, how these documents, you know, might capture a portion or, or give us a glimpse of society at a particular time, but that view of society may not have been prevailed for the duration of the period, which is quite long, of course, you know, two and a half centuries. So the questions, uh, just to uh, reiterate, reiterate, I guess, um, were, were aimed at getting students to think about change over time and also to relate it to other, one, one uh, particular document, how it might connect with a document in another section. Because in a sense, while there are eight parts of the book, the major topic, uh, sectional topics are, are to some extent very subjective. You know, what, what goes in recreational life versus domestic sphere, material life, there's a lot of overlap. So I wanted them to be able to not think of these as hard and fast barriers uh, or chapters in the book, but just one, one particular way of organizing the material. Perhaps, uh, and and so one one of the um, assignments that that I give is to take a theme that runs across the various sections, so that that way they can see uh, what I mean by that. For example, the theme of control it applies in multiple sections of the book. You can find controls on the samurai, controls on the commoners, uh, attempts to control clothing and and lifestyle, as well as physical mobility. So these themes run throughout the, out the book. So I think that those are my kind of uh, tacit guiding principles. Yeah, and I, I think they're wonderful. Really help um, help the reader to see the connections between the 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 documents and um, their their time, their context, their historical context. Um, now to shift to the perspective of educators who teach about Japan or East Asia, how do you think we can better use primary sources in our teaching? What are some of the methods that you use in your own teaching, in your own classroom? Right. Um, good question. Well, I, I just alluded to one of the, the methods, and that is to think about themes and then to think about change over time. Um, a, an assignment that actually is not my own, but a, a colleague of mine who shared it with me, which is one of the wonderful things about writing a, a book like this, that you, you don't know how professors are going to use it. And so when professors do share how they use it, it it's, it's very informative. So one um, professor gave an assignment to the students to write their own entry to the book. So, and he gave them a list of uh, primary sources that aren't in the book. And so that students could select uh, a document and then they have to do the work that I did here, choose what portion of the document to use, if it's a long one, and then to come up with the supporting material. So I think that's a really excellent assignment because it gets students to think about, you know, what is actually in a document and, and how we have to think about what, what kinds of uh, things do we need to look into uh, from the language to the underlying concepts, the time period in which it was written and, and so forth. So that, those are a couple um, 
strategies that, that I think are uh, quite effective. But I, I'm open to hearing uh, from others uh, also how they, how they might uh, use it. Definitely. And um, in writing this book, um, especially from the introduction of the whole book and the introductions of each chapter, I noticed that you're covering really the, the, the grand picture of the entire history of early modern Japan, which is a, a huge project to do. And of course, there has already been so much scholarship out there, so many other history books written on this topic. So I'm curious, um, when you were writing these introductions, were there any um, anything that you tried to avoid, um, like mistakes made in other history books, or uh, misconceptions, perhaps, or even, say, um, now that um, the media is used as such an effective way to spread knowledge, um, we can get all sorts of versions of early modern Japanese history on the internet. Right. Was there anything in particular that you tried to distinguish from comparing to other versions of history or the well, commonly misunderstood versions of history? Right. Well, I wanted to offer a, a, a broad range of a, a large number of documents that cover a broad range of topics so that it, it wouldn't simply be social history or intellectual history or religion. Um, but it, um, I think it was important to show students that um, without getting to without getting theoretical or without even doing so explicitly to show them that history is contested. And I know if, if I just said that to them, you know, eyes would roll. But if they understand that implicitly by the selection of documents within one section, then, then the, uh, you know, the greater task of, of uh, education is, is, is better, better served. So, you know, whether it's the notion of Japan as a closed country or, or even for students to question, you know, um, what it is they're looking at, you know, in the example, again, of the painting of, of the mission from Korea, if it is that, <laughs> you know, that it's been accepted as such for a long time. But, you know, if they students read that particular the material that goes along with that particular document, they'll understand that, you know, even among historians that knowledge is ever, ever changing and what was once accepted knowledge is now questioned. And that isn't a bad thing. It leads to new levels of understanding about um, the culture and the, the time period. So I think that that's the, uh, the main kind of overarching uh, theoretical um, pedagogical messages that I hope they get without using those words. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> now, moving towards the end of this conversation, um, I want to shift to the larger picture a bit um, and draw you back to teaching again. What do you think are some 
good and bad aspects about the current education system when it comes to teaching about Japanese studies, regional studies, or perhaps foreign language and cultural studies, and how do you think we can improve? You mentioned earlier that you hope for this book to be used not only in universities, not only for graduate students, but even in high school or for four-year institutions. Um, what do you think are some of the problems, something that needs to be improved, or something good that needs to be kept? Right, that's a huge question. <laughs> Where to begin? Um, well, you know, area studies itself, in a way, is you know, it's nothing new, but it, it, it in a sense, is, continues to be under attack, uh, where we have to, in a sense, legitimize ourselves. And you see that um, for, I, I was the founding director of our Asian Studies program at, at uh, UMBC. And so going to these recruit, recruiting events where high school seniors come and with their parents, and the first question you get from, usually from the parent, not from the student, is what will my son or daughter be able to do with a degree in Asian studies. So I, I feel like area, regional studies, area studies has to justify itself to a degree that is not uh, as common in other other disciplines. And so that, that can be a difficult uh, task, particularly when, uh, you know, the education system, you know, with rising student, legitimate concerns with student debt and uh, employability, um, that uh, there, there is understandably a need for informing students and their parents that we not only teach a geographic, uh, a knowledge, intensive knowledge about a ge- geographic area that is of extreme importance to the world in world history, but that we also teach critical skills that are applicable in whatever field the student happens to go into you know, postgraduate. And so it's important. Uh, so I think it, it's a lot of uh, work. It's important to be able to say the kinds of things that students can do. You know, not, not everyone wants to become a historian or an educator, uh, which is, is fine, but the skills that they learn uh, in, in area studies uh, will serve them well, uh, regardless of, of what they go into. But as I said, that's a difficult uh, sell, but one that we have to continue to, uh, to make. And then there's, there's the issue of, um, you know, within Asian studies of the kind of uh, w- waves that the field goes through. It seems when Japan is up, China is down. And when China is up, Japan is down. And then w- what happens with Korea? Um, uh, Korea is kind of, you know, it, it, when I was going through my graduate education, Korea was kind of an afterthought. Um, now it's been integrated much more into East Asian history, but but still, I, I think there's a, a ways uh, uh, to go. So n- now, if you look at the jobs and the field uh, and literature that's being written now, there's much more emphasis on China, which is understandable, just as it was in the 80s with the rise of Japan as an economic power. The focus was on Japan. So it's... Um, I guess it's unavoidable, this kind of cyclical nature of uh, how the current geopolitical situation affects academia. 
but that's something to recognize and uh, it does have an impact on you know the kinds of um, how, how the field is shaped and what the future will look like. Yes, and um, I, I think with the pandemic going on and with the rise of online teaching, a lot of uh, institutions are cutting down on departments of area studies and foreign languages studies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's in a way it's a very sad thing for us who are already in the field to see. But in another way, it's also prompting us to rethink how we should brand our fields. And I think that's what um, your book does so well, is to show that um, we're not only teaching about, we, we do not only present students with history, our versions of history, we teach them ways of thinking, right. ways to approach these problems. You raise a really good point, uh, and thank you for bringing it up. That is sort of, I think, of my, my career post-tenure um, has moved in a direction of trying to make Japanese history more accessible, uh, to reach a broader uh, public, and to, to also show that Scholars can do many other things besides write monographs for each other. And, and, and so I think the field is changing and more people recognize that we have to uh, embrace public history in a way that, you know, I probably would have been unwilling to do when I first started or, or didn't recognize the importance of doing. Um, and so I think for the viability of the field and, and to remain relevant to uh, academia and, and to students, we have to embrace public history to reaching out and telling our story, um, the story of our particular fields in a way that is accessible to students. And so if you'll um, permit me a, a, a shameless plug, that, that's one reason why I embraced the project to, to, to create a, an animation with uh, Ted Ed, uh, the, the story of a young samurai. Um, so in, in hopes of, you know, reaching many, many more people than I ever will be able to uh, with a monograph or even with this textbook. Um, so it's really important, I think. Uh, and more, more and more scholars are, are doing that today, whether it's writing op-eds or creating animations or podcasts like yours, um, covering a, a wide range of topics. I think more people understand the importance of doing this kind of public-facing history. Yes, in, in, in that way, it's very exciting for us to challenge these new fields. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was, uh, th- thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you um, for uh, this interview and for the wonderful questions. It got me thinking about uh, teaching in an important way since i gearing up to teach again in the fall. Thank you very much. Yes, that's uh, And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us on uh, in the new books on Japanese studies. If you're an educator, if you are teaching or will be teaching about world history, Japanese history, or Asian history, make sure you check out this textbook written by Dr. Constantine Viparis, uh, new, uh Voices of Early Modern Japan, Contemporary Accounts of Daily Life During the Age of the Shoguns. This is Jing Yi from New Books on Japanese Studies. 
I will see you in our next episode. Until then, goodbye.